we are having hosting the one of uh, the greatest teachers of uh, of Africa in in Oxford. Uh, Professor Gavin Williams is a teacher of teachers, uh, professor of professors. Uh, there are so many things to say about him that I would uh, not bother to introduce him because I know you all know him. Uh, but his book, which is uh, one of the books that uh, have defined uh, the study of Nigeria, I um, remember reading this in graduate school, although uh, such a poor student that uh, there's not much of <laughs> not much of what I read then about it. <laughs> I, can't, I can remember only a very, very few things about, about it now. But I remember very well that it was one of the key texts that uh, was used in Ibadan uh, to teach us about uh, state and society in, in, in Nigeria. Uh, so I'm uh, quite happy that a new edition has been published with uh, a new chapter added. Um, so we, I would introduce uh, our colleague who will be reviewing, will be reviewing the book today. Uh, Dr. Portia Roloff is uh, an alum of Oxford. She studied uh, PPE here in uh, Queen's College uh, so many years ago mm -hmm. and uh, took a uh, master's from uh, Asuas and a PhD from King's College. Uh, she was recently uh, a fellow at the LSE in Depart the Department of International Development and she just started uh, the Clayman Fulford Junior Research Fellowship in Politics and Political Theory at St. Anne's College uh, this October, just this month. Um, so we are happy to welcome uh, Portia, who would uh, review the book. Uh, but first, we we'll want to hear from the author about the experience of publishing a new edition of the book before Portia would uh, review the book. And then we'll hear from his response to the review, and then we'll throw it open for a discussion. So Portia, uh, please can you join me in welcoming? There are only a few copies available of the book, so I suggest that it simply be sent round. There are sufficient for them to be sent round at least, so that people can see what, what it looks like. Um, let me explain how this book came to be produced. Um, in 1980, at the suggestion of a Nigerian publisher, I published four essays which were all written in the 1970s and represent my thinking about the literature of that period on the political economy, politics, sociology of, Ibad of Nigeria in that period, so that in that sense, the book is a book about a generation. It's about a generation of people writing about Nigeria in that period and coming after an earlier generation of scholars. I, mean, I say in the book that basically, putting it simply, we thought our work was an advance on theirs. Uh, actually, I no longer hold the, that view. I think that much of the work of authors in the 1960s, like Richard Sklar, Ken Post, J.P. McIntosh, were works on politics which we never really could um, succeed in surpassing. 
as I say, what the book is about is what I had to say in the 1970s in the context of debates and discussions with other colleagues, one of whom is, one of whom is here, um, writing about and trying to interpret Nigeria from that period. How this book came to be written is that in 19, that it was first published in 1980. In 2010, I gave a lecture at the University of Ibadan, and Professor Adigun Agbaje said, I must lecture on state and society in Nigeria revisited. And I said, look, Adigun, I no longer study Nigeria. The last thing I ever wrote on Nigeria was written in 1995. I don't actually know anything about Nigeria, at least over the subsequent 15 years. That's slightly untrue because I could borrow, as you'll see, from the work of many of my graduate students who certainly did know a lot about Nigeria. Therefore, I took the lecture I gave on that occasion, I revised it and rethought some of the themes which are discussed there, and particularly themes which had not really appeared in the first um, edition, notably discussions of religion and ethnicity. Porsche suggests that it may be helpful if I simply go through the contents of the first book. So I'll do that very briefly. The first chapter is called Ideas of Development. It can be, by, be summarized in three words following Henry Ford on history. Development is bunk. The next is on the political economy of Nigeria which is historical account of the neo-colonial and colonial political economies as I interpreted them. As I said, I wouldn't use the language of Leo anything now. And of then the character of the Nigerian political economy and the attempt to make, an, an attempt to produce an, a Incredible, a credible account of Nigeria through a lens of an intellectual perspective which placed that history within a context of the relations between politics and economics. It links, I think, to the intellectual context of those of us Robin Cohen included, who founded the Review of African Political Economy. The next chapter is entitled Politics in Nigeria. I can summarize it simply straightforwardly from the text. Any study of politics must examine the allocation of scarce resources, the determination of public policy, and the relation of conflicts among classes. The subsequent one for which, which has, I think, gained 
some considerable attention is a study of the, politically con the political consciousness of the poor in Ibadan, and looks both at the urban poor and at the rural society, particularly a photo of cocoa farmers, who engaged at that time in the Agbekoya rebellion, Agbekoya meaning the farmers renounced suffering. The classic work on the subject is Christopher Beer's book, the political is it the political history of the Nigerian peasantry. Um, he and I also wrote together, bringing our joint work together in the volume Nigeria Economy and Society. A interesting article has been written on the subject by Tunde Adeniron, and there is a very good, I don't know whether it's, an, whether it's a Nollywood um, film of the Agbekoya. Um, I think if you type it in online, you'll get the film, which is represents the drama very well and I think allowing for a certain dramatic license is I think a very accurate account of the events. Finally, I looked at ideologies of economic development. My concern was to try to understand the ideological foundation of the economic development analysis and practice of that period, that analysis and practice being shaped very much by the Michigan State University School, and very much, I think, in terms of an imposition of policies f founded in the um, theoretical assumptions, at least, of what came to be known as neoclassical economy. By, by ideology, I meant the assumptions with which people think, rather than sets of goals and values. As for the last chapter, I've already given you an account of how it came to be written, and in many ways that is perhaps the chapter which it is most interesting or important to discuss. Okay, thank you. Hi, can everyone hear me at the back? Am I loud enough? Otherwise we can stand up. Um, thank you very much to the African Studies Centre for inviting me. Um, to Wale, to Liz and Julia, the organisers, to St Anthony's College for hosting it. Um, and to Gavin for inviting me to review his book. Um, about ten years ago I was an undergraduate here studying under Gavin and so it really feels like a huge honor to be kind of given this cho this chance to kind of speak back to to the what what really is the canon now in uh, Nigerian politics um, 
just a, a couple of, of comments on that kind of genealogy in which I feel really happy to be located. Um, but before I kind of got onto the review of the book. First of all, in a tiny amendment to Wale's bio of me, I actually did my PhD at LSE with Kate Maher, who is here, and so I just wanted to... Uh, it's not at King's. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And, and that, is, that is another kind of... I, I think... Yeah, the kind of the sense of a developing genealogy of scholars from and through Oxford um, on Nigerian studies is is something that kind of comes out of a lot of the work that's coming out at the moment that's very collaborative. Um, but also I kind of just looking back on it today, thinking I was so lucky that I got to study here for my undergraduate and, and that was my first initiation to studying the politics of countries in Africa because uh, I really, I take Mandami's uh, invocation to try and study African politics in a way that neither exoticizes it nor banalizes it. And I really think that was what was happening in the, the kind of syllabus and curriculum that we dealt with that was really kind of, um, in some ways it predated a lot of the kind of neo-patrimonialism literature that came out of the 1990s and 2000s, which was very much what I then encountered when I left and I did a master's in African politics. So I, I felt like I was really lucky to have this much more grounded, realistic, kind of non-ideological study of African politics to kind of ground me in before I went out and kind of uh, into the world and kind of looked at the broader literature. So that was very valuable. Um, in terms of reviewing this book, uh, Gavin said, please feel free to be critical. And I don't know if I'm going to be critical, but I'm hoping that I can replace the, the frankness of criticism with the frankness of confusion. And so reading this book, State and Society in Nigeria, that was entirely written before I was even born, does present some aspects of kind of confusion and, and that I tried to work through in reading the book and making sense of it. And so... Um, so that's what I'm going to present now. So I'm going to start with the kind of the, the balance and the tension between transparency and confusion that I think you get in the kind of form and the structure of the book and reading it from Oxford in 2019. And then I'm going to try and make sense of some of these confusions by talking about the interplay of possibility and frustration that I think really runs through the book and the study of Nigeria at the time. Um, so first of all, the, the transparency. So this book, I, I don't know if it came across in, in Gavin's kind of uh, summary, but it really is the most amazing document of, of thinking in progress, of the revisions, the reconsiderations, the edits that go into a body of scholarly work that are so often edited out. So I think even, and I think there's actually more to this than Gavin lets on. So we start with an introduction that's written in 1980 after the subsequent five essays. We then have two essays on politics and political economy in Nigeria, which, as far as I understand, were written in 1976 and 1977. There's also then an addendum to those first two essays, so essay four, written in 1979, applying the insights of those two chapters to the 1979 election. So we already have some looking back, some revision, some changing of, of the position, some of kind of self-criticism. We then have... Uh, Two further essays, uh, Rural Development and, um, no, ide uh, Political Consciousness in Ibadan and Ideology in Rural Development, written in 1972 and 1973. So they actually predate the earlier essays in the book. Then we have the conclusion written in 2010, which is again updated in 2016. 
So in terms of kind of showing you're working and leaving of breadcrumbs for, for readers to, f to follow and to situate the work, it's tremendously helpful. And, and coming to the work kind of 40 years later, potentially, it really helps you kind of deconstruct and make sense of, of the scholarship that's gone into it. Um, moreover, there is a real, uh, there's a kind of wealth of references. Uh, and, and you get a, a strong sense of, as, as Gavin says, the kind of generation in which he was working in the milieu that really, really influenced that scholarship. So again, getting rid of the sense of kind of writing from nowhere, writing from a universalistic standpoint, that's broken down as we see, no, this is where I was writing from. Here are my colleagues, here are my friends. This is what I was reacting to. Yet that said, reading the work when you don't know what any of those references are, when they refer elsewhere off the page to other, other bodies of literature that you're not familiar with, you, you still kind of realize how, uh, how big a gap there is between the reader and, and the, the, the kind of writer. Um, thinking about that a little bit in terms of reading from here in Oxford, the possibility of following up those, those references, of filling in the blanks, is just a case of kind of walking to the Rhodes Library, walking to the SSL. A lot of those paths, a lot of those references you can follow up. If you were a postdoc in a, many universities in Nigeria, the ease with which you could fill in these blanks and make sense of, of any work, but this work as well, would be much, much uh, more difficult. So I think that, that's worth bearing in mind. And also just the, the kind of t the sense of, of what has happened in the interim between the writing of this book and now, so this book covers a period of uh, independence and the Nigerian civil war and the shift from uh, a kind of military dictatorship into civilian rule. So it covers a lot. And yet reading from 2019, there's a strong sense that some of the most decisive moments in Nigeria's uh, political and political economic history haven't happened. They're just around the corner. They're kind of waiting to happen. So for this, I'd say it's a 1983 crash in oil prices which actually Gavin's analysis of the kind of contradictions of industrial development under Obasanjo in the late 70s really pre prefigures, but also the imposition of structural adjustment policies in the late 80s and early 90s. So there is a sense of kind of reading before these almost catastrophic events occur. And so there's a sense of foreboding or kind of dramatic irony in places. But then I think there's also a kind of a, a confusion I had, which I think is kind of inherent in the text, and that's what I'm going to devote the rest of this review to. So whilst it's clear what it is that Gavin is doing in terms of the kind of activity, okay, he's describing the politics and political economy of Nigeria in various periods. I did, I did get this sense of confusion or um, ambivalence over what it was really for. What was the motive? What was the motivation of doing this sort of analysis? Um, and so I think there are two contending options for what the motivation is. And so the first one is this kind of, uh, it's set out in the introduction where he draws on classical Marxists, Lenin, Geschenkron, and others who argue that capitalism is not an end in itself, but it's a means to expanding the productive capacity of the economy such that uh, socialism can be ushered in and the state withers away. And so there's a lot of evidence in the book that this is, this is the motive. You're analyzing how far is uh, Nigeria along this journey in the terms of the development of capitalist society. So for example, he notes that the development of capitalism is too serious a business to be left to the capitalists. The conclusion of uh, the second essay 
is that neither the military government nor its political rivals have demonstrated their capacity to establish the social institutions necessary for a successful Nigerian capitalist revolution and the maintenance of a capitalist society. Similar um, conclusions come in the next essay. And then looking back on what he was trying to do, he says, what we are trying to do was to make sense of the international economic context and the formation of a capitalist society. So that gives you a pretty standard kind of Marxist account of the time. This is why we're doing this analysis, to kind of measure Nigeria on its path towards this kind of teleological end. And yet, running alongside this motivation, there, there seems to be a contrary one as well. So after the introduction spends several pages setting up this framework for analysis, it also kind of uh, conducts an about turn in the last two lines. So it says, the standpoint of the essays in this volume is a radical re rejection of development through the exploitation and subjection of producers, whether in the name of socialism or liberation. Rather, it's a commitment to the emancipation of labor, the creation of conditions which enable people to produce freely in cooperation with each other, rather than under the direction of capital and state. So here we see a motivation which is slightly different. It's about the emancipation of labor, free production, but it seems to kind of untether itself a little bit from the really prescriptive analyses that we see of the kind of socialist uh, line of thinkers. What's really interesting is at the very end of the book, so just before the uh, 2010 conclusion, almost the last line is, we must face the question, under what conditions can farmers advance and protect their interests, and how can they, in alliance with others, establish and maintain these conditions? So what I find really interesting here is we have almost several chapters describing the kind of mechanisms of capitalist development, class relations, within quite a fixed analytical framework. And almost the last line of the book, as it was written in the 70s, is to throw this all open and say, what are these conditions? We've got to work them out. Who knows what they might be? So I thought that was a really kind of interesting tension. Um, and so to answer and kind of, or my answer to this, I think it's important to look at the kind of the way that possibility and frustration runs through the book. Uh, so reading this in 2019, one is really struck by the sense of ambition and political possibility that existed in Nigeria in the 1960s and 70s. So I won't go into it kind of in detail, but we see the hugely ambitious Independence Day announcement from General Gowan setting out a nine-point program where he's really saying how he's going to design and transform all aspects of the political system, the military, social relations. Uh, we see this again in the 1976 draft of the Constitution, where the, the drafters aim for nothing less than defining a universal goal for the nation and seem to be pretty confident that they can stipulate what that goal is and kind of set out a blueprint of how to get there. Uh, amidst all of these kind of state-led ambitions of the, the national development plans, income review process, this quite kind of uh, far-reaching sense of possibility of what could be designed, what could be reinvented. You also see quite impressive kind of uh, actions within society outside of the state. So I think in 19... 63, 64, there was 750,000 workers withdrew their labor for two weeks. And this is at a time when the Nigerian population is a quarter of what it is today. So these are quite meaningful and kind of large scale political maneuverings. And yet at the same time, um, oh, and I think it's also worth just noting the roles of Nigerian intellectuals in this process of, and in the sense of possibility and ambition. Um, 
So I, I talk about it a bit more in the kind of written review. But if you look at the work of people like Yusuf Bangura, um, the work of uh, Jibril Ibrahim, there's a huge sense that political scientists and academics themselves can be perhaps at the forefront of this kind of uh, expansive, ambitious reconsideration of what society and politics could be. Um, so uh, there, there are kind of a, a, a number of things in the book that point to this. Uh, one thing I wanted to just kind of highlight that, that is after the, the time frame of the book. So in 1986, the National Political Science Association of Nigeria had a conference called Alternative Political Futures for Nigeria, 1990 and Beyond. And Jibra Nibrayim writes up a review of this conference for the Review of African Political Economy that same year. And he notes that the one thing that the left and the right could not agree on in this uh, that they could agree on in this conference was that they were not going to advocate liberal democracy to the government. So, so there is a sense among the kind of Nigerian political science intelligentsia of, of politics is still for the deciding. There is no kind of post-political consensus. It's still wide open. So um, I think that's kind of an interesting thing to note. And yet, at the same time, you get this strong sense of frustration running through the book, running through the era. Um, there's a, a book about Ken Sarawiwa's life by Roy Doyen and Toyin Falola. And they describe how in 1966, when there was news of the coup, kind of ending the First Republic, there were celebrations in the University of Ibadan. People were cheering. They were hugging each other. They really described this carnivalesque atmosphere. So the kind of the frustration and the disappointment with what Nigeria was turning into in the early years of independence were really kind of visceral. Um, there's also a, a, a quote from the book, uh, which is even earlier. It, it, it dates frustration to 1960. It says, by 1960, it was clear that hopes for life more abundant were only to be realized for the few. Nigerians found that colonial rule had been replaced with politicians' rule. Politics itself became the focus of resentment. It was identified with the corrupt and blatant enrichment of the few at the expense of the many, the nepotism, tribalism, and repression with which politicians kept themselves in power. So reading that in 2019, you think, man, so this was 1960. Like, the Nigerian project was over before it was even begun. What, what are we meant to do with this information? So alongside this kind of great ambition, great sense of frustration, I think the book presents a number of ways of kind of getting over this, this, this tension. Um, and I think they were present in the kind of political life that uh, Gavin was describing. So the first option, uh, as, as proposed by Gowan and the kind of military government, is that you take certain things outside of politics and you allow government to just steer the country in the direction of the national interest. So bureaucratic authoritarianism. Um, so for example, uh, Gowan proclaimed that as such, the federal government operates a system which knows no loyalty other than loyalty to the nation, the people, and development, which are all above politics. So the sense of, okay, you can, you can bracket politics, you can limit it. There's another option, as opposed to bureaucratic authoritarianism, which is constitutionalism. So if you look at, um, for example, the 1976 uh, drafting process of the Constitution, and that's something I'm slightly... Con I don't quite know the relationship between 1976 version and 1979 version, but there is a sense led by uh, political scientists like uh, Billy Dudley that constitutionalism can do the same job, but in a different way. Um, so, for example, political ideals embodying public goals and values 
should be placed above politics and define the framework within which political conflict can take place. And they were saying you can do this by writing a constitution. So again, another attempt to kind of section off what can be discussed within politics as a way of kind of limiting it and, and reaching the kind of public good or the national interest overall. Um, however, in, in Gavin's, in, uh, we get the sense that, that neither of these is likely to work. So civilian rule is thus likely to repeat the failure of politics and hence to invite in its turn fresh, fresh demonstrations from the military of the failure of administration. So neither of these options kind of face much, much prospect of succeeding. Uh, and so here we start to get a sense of, of Gavin's own kind of normative motivation in the book. He says that while there was no space in the politics of wheeling and dealing for more expansive political values like equality and legitimacy, they could ne nonetheless be sought through direct resistance to exploitation and oppression, as for example in the 1964 general strike, or the TIV and Yoruba resistance to their respective regional governments, of which the prime example is the Abakoya rebellion that he details in one of the chapters. Talking about the, the strike that I mentioned before, he says this was in effect a strike against part parliamentary politics. As part of this mobilization, a demonstration of 30,000 people at Ibadan Racecourse chanted, no AG, no NCNC. So that's no to both of the political parties that are operating at the time. And so I think what's really interesting here, uh, he argues, a narrow conception of politics reduces it to the contest for political office and the competition for its spoils. Politics in Nigeria often seems to be about just this. So what's interesting is that if you think about a lot of the work that's written on Nigeria at the moment, the kind of essentially like pro-democracy writings, they say Nigeria will, will improve, it will redeem itself if it sticks more tightly to the narrow electoral conception of democracy. So if it, if it does succeed in placing certain things outside of politics, so uh, the inviability of electoral rule, the rule of law, these kind of, con we see this kind of, uh, lean towards constitutionalism in the current commentary, Gavin offers us something totally different. Um, he says at the end of the, 19, the, the kind of middle chapter, the task for socialists seems to me to, be find, to find ways to build on the resistance of common people to exploitation and to create a popular socialist movement which goes beyond the issues which concern workers alone and articulates the grievances of all exploited classes in opposition to the current alternatives of bourgeois politics and authoritarian rule. And he also points out in the same chapter that really all of, the all of the political parties that contest elections tend to offer the same thing. And he says this is happening in 1979. So we get this totally alternative view of how you uh, <coughs> fulfill the possibilities and ambitions of the moment and you do it not by limiting politics and putting it to one side, but opening it up and putting kind of class conflict back on the table of what can be contested within the realm of political competition. Um, so in the remaining time, I just want to raise a kind of uh, a potential complication to my, my analysis and then kind of draw out what I think is a kind of main message. Um, so what's interesting, if... If, as this suggests, Gavin is not especially committed to a Marxist political economy analysis, why is it that it spends so much time using that conceptual framework and that kind of mechanisms to make sense of what's going on? Especially as later in the book, 
we get more and more of a kind of loosening of that conceptual framework as more analytical categories are uh, admitted into the analysis. So, for example, um, the chapter on, on farmers and rural development, Gavin quotes Polly Hill saying, we must study the farmer, not patronise him. We must assume that he knows his business better than we do, unless there is evidence to the contrary. And so this is part of a justification of really grounded, inductive, bottom-up research. Um, and it was really interesting reading that chapter on the day that the Nobel Prize was awarded for randomized control trials, because I think that's a very, very strong critique, you know, 30 years before. But it's really worth reading that chapter as a kind of engagement with the, the politics of research. But so we, we get a kind of more inductive approach. In, in the final conclusion, he also kind of releases his grasp even on the idea of class. So he, he says that he's rethinking his idea of the bourgeoisie. Class and status are analytically separate. How they relate to one another is an empirical question. I am now, if anything, inclined to think that everything is about status and honour. It often appears to be so in Nigerian public life. So again, after a strongly class-based analysis for several chapters, it kind of concludes by saying maybe class isn't actually the important kind of category here. We also see this in its kind of reverse in the chapter on um, political consciousness in Ibadan with the shift away from talking about workers or farmers or any specific category and accepting that this may, in terms of political consciousness, function more as a, a group of just the have-nots, so a kind of broader consciousness here. So I think what's interesting is you see in the book a kind of strengthening as the book goes on of the sense of motivation and yet a weakening of the confidence that actually a set analytical framework is going to explain or guide or analyse what's going on in politics. Um, and so thinking of that in 2019, thinking of it today, I, I feel that in some ways what Gavin calls for has to some extent happened. So the kind of post-politics, end-of-history consensus that was represented at least in this country by New Labour and in the US by the kind of Clinton era has really fallen apart and we see much more of what Chantal Mouffe would call agonistic politics. All of a sudden everything is on the table. Politics seems to have nothing that's off limits. There are many kind of core questions that are suddenly up for debate again. And this kind of poses a question, how confident are we in our conceptual frameworks that we use to uh, analyse this kind of newly opened up field of politics? Um, and so I don't know what Gavin thinks of that analysis. I think there's a lot in the book that give us some of these tools, but there's also a really interesting kind of humility and awareness that whatever set of conceptual tools you start out with, you may well end up kind of shifting them and adapting them in light of the complexities of the country that you study. Um, so I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, Pusha, for that excellent review. Um, uh, I would open it up for discussion.